to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, Derek Vreeland. Derek's the discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He is also an author, including of the newly released book, Centering Jesus, How the Lamb of God Transforms Our Community, Ethics, and Spiritual Lives. We're going to take a deep dive in this episode into what it actually means to hold Jesus as the center. Again, that seems like a no-brainer, right? But Derek's going to take us deep into what it looks like when Jesus truly is the center of our spiritual formation, our moral lives, and our corporate life together as God's people. We're also going to talk about how he's been able to write a series of books while simultaneously serving as a local church pastor. Hope you love this episode as much as I enjoyed uh, uh, conducting the interview. If I can be of any service to you, please check out the show notes for links. You can reach me at brianrussellphd.com. And also want to bring to your attention, I have a new book as well that came out on August 15th called Astonished by the Word, Reading Scripture for Deep Transformation. Again, links to everything that Derek refers to as well as ways to get in touch with myself and with Derek will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Now let's jump into the conversation. Hey, Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks for being my guest today. Brian, so good to be with you today. Yeah, before we jumped on here, we were just talking. I I know I've known Derek and even your books for, I guess it's been over a decade. And yeah. I think I endorsed something. It's been a long time, your N.T. Wright book, I think, right? So it's yes, like, we've, but we've never even... talked be, we've never spoken before. <laughs> so it's really kind of fun. Well, yeah, we, we have corresponded and you endorsed one of my books. I did your invitation Bible study, I actually led three or four groups through that. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm a Asbury grad. And so we have that in common, but we're now we're finally virtually face to face. And, and congratulations on your, on your new book, Centering uh, Jesus. Um, you were kind enough to let me have a copy of it. And I've been able to, I've, read, I've actually been able to read most of it so far. Right. So I'm going to ask you some questions about that, but yeah, uh, just, just as a kind of way to jump into things, uh, share a little bit uh, about just your spiritual journey that's you know led you into ministry, just kind of the highlights, and then as it put you in a position now where you're a pastor and actually been the author of multiple books. Well, it all started for me January 26th, 1986. I was baptized at a Southern Baptist church here in my hometown of St. Joseph, Missouri. And uh, both my wife's family, my family, multi-generation Southern Baptists, and uh, when I was 15, and I would have been a sophomore in high school, had a real dramatic encounter with Jesus, one of those watershed moments where I just went all in. And uh, shortly after, uh, felt a call to ministry. Right after my 16th birthday, felt called to be a pastor. And my uh, Baptist uh, pastor and youth pastor, Sunday school teacher, they were all very affirming uh, of that call. And um, in high school, in my Southern Baptist Church, I, of course, uh, learned to have the quiet time and and uh, devoted to Scripture. And uh, I continued to ask questions about the Holy Spirit, um, and I wasn't satisfied with the answers I was getting. Um, I didn't realize at the time, didn't have the awareness, that Southern Baptist Church was more cessationist because I would be reading in the book of Acts and ask questions about speaking in tongues and healings and miracles. And I said, oh, that doesn't happen anymore. That passed away. That was just for the apostolic age. And, you know, as a 17 year old uh, Jesus lover who was devoted to the scripture, it was hard for me to reconcile uh, them saying, now read the Bible, do the Bible. This is our book. Um, and then parts of it uh, didn't apply anymore, didn't make sense. And so uh, into college, I uh, drifted into the charismatic renewal, um, and that was really led by my you know, devotion to scripture and uh, wanted a faith that was really shaped by uh, what we saw in the New Testament. And uh, so that led me on to Oral Roberts University, where I did my MDiv, 
And uh, that was a life-changing experience because in seminary, um, I was exposed to church history and biblical languages and substantive theology. And uh, I realized that the body of Christ was much broader than my the, the narrow charismatic and Baptist stream that I had known. And so the theological tools I received um, at Oral Roberts, which is a Pentecostal charismatic uh, university, uh, the tools I got is what really led me sort of away from at least the the popular charismatic movement. Um, I still embrace the charismatic dimensions of the faith, um, but my spiritual journey after seminary led me into something much more ecumenical, um, more rooted and grounded in the ancient church and in traditions. And uh, then did my D-men at Asbury uh, Theological Seminary, and while I was pastoring in Georgia and doing working on my D men, I really was drawn towards uh, the world of spiritual formation. And so Bob Mulholland and Eugene Peterson, Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, these all became uh, real predominant influences in my life. And so while I wanted to hang on to the some of the charismatic dimensions of our faith, I really begin to see the role of the Holy Spirit um, as forming us uh, in the image of Jesus. And um, after pastoring 12 years in uh, South Georgia, moved back to my hometown where I'm serving as the discipleship pastor. Uh, it's a non-denominational church that's really a ancient future kind of church um, where we really appreciate uh, the great tradition um, but we have, you know, a rock band and we wear blue jeans and have a coffee shop and all the contemporary stuff. And, uh, so, um, it's been an interesting ride. It's hard to define where I'm at now, um, just in my spiritual journey. It's always been centered on Jesus. Um, but it's, uh, I'm really just a theological mutt. Uh, John Wesley's always been a spiritual mentor, uh, and a hero for me, but I'm still kind of charismatic. I'm a little bit Anabaptist. Um, I love the Anglican tradition with its prayer book and liturgy. And so I'm just in this kind of conglomeration um, that's centered on Jesus, rooted in uh, the historic uh, you know, groundedness of, of the church, but certainly missional in the sense that we're we're looking forward and how to make disciples in a uh, post-Christian culture. No, it's good. And everything you just said just comes out loud and clear in, in your book. And I uh, want to just explore just for a second. And uh, I'm a Bible professor, so I have to exegete everything. So, I, I, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, your title, Centering Jesus, that's the that's the main title. And then, but you have a really interesting um, uh, subtitle, which I think will help people to draw people into the to the book. Um, how the Lamb of God transforms our communities, ethics, and spiritual lives. And you know, obviously, when you read the book, you, you do a lot of stuff. You have to talk about Revelation. You get the you get the stuff of the Lamb Lamb coming in, and even talk about some farming stuff, which is kind of fun early on in on in the <laughs> book. So, of all the um, metaphors that you could have used for for Jesus, you pick that one out on a book called Centering Jesus. So I'm just curious, just for just to introduce your book a little bit, um, talk about the title and 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 just the role that that image of Lamb of God really plays in your in your themes as you pull everything else together. Well, I I love the title Centering Jesus, but that was not my original title originally. Uh... When I was pitching the book manuscript, it was the lamb at the center. Ah. Uh, but it was uh, Dave Zimmerman, my publisher at Nav Press, um, with his team, um, came up with Centering Jesus, which I love. I just told them, well, they asked me my thoughts on that as a title. I said, that's fine as long as lamb is somewhere in there, because Jesus as the lamb of God is the controlling motif throughout the whole book. And I was, the seeds of the book were really planted in my heart late 2020 and then into 2021. And, you know, at, at that time, you know, we were in the thick of the COVID crisis, um, political upheaval. I had just started putting together an outline um, early 2021, January 6, 2021. 
um, the resurfacing of racial injustice, and just the angry divisiveness in our culture and the the heightening of vitriol, I think because of COVID and racial injustice and political upheaval and economic uncertainty, it just brought to the surface for me, it's just a lot of anger and vitriol. And there have been Christians then, now, and historically that want to co-opt Jesus into their vitriol um, to increase the antagonisms that already exist. And so this image that we're given in scripture of Jesus as the lamb of God, that just was really overwhelming for me. And I thought, this is what we need in this current cultural moment. We need a fresh imagination of Jesus as the ruling reigning lamb of God, as ironic as that seems, and I think it's supposed to have some irony to it. Um, and then keeping Jesus as the lamb at the center of some key areas of Christian experience, including spiritual formation, our moral lives, speaking of our moral lives in terms of virtue, and then our common life together, which is both our life of worship, advocacy for justice, political engagement. What does it look like to keep Jesus as the Lamb of God at the center of all of these different experiences? That's really where the book came from. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, it's one of those funny things. Um, I was just telling you, my 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 own book, Astonished by the Word, comes out next uh, next week. And it's not it's not really the same book, but in the sense it kind of is, because I, I start out I, and use one of Augustine's quotes too, is kind of your hermeneutic about about Jesus, and and I build my whole book on, um, well, build the basic idea on Augustine has this really simple line in his book on Christian doctrine. He says if if you um, if you haven't understood a text until you understand how it teaches the double love of God and neighbor, you know you actually drill it down even farther and just make it Jesus. But it's we're on this we're on the same page, yeah. and, and the funny thing is I was as I've thought about you know my own book and and, and even think about yours, it's like. Why do we even have to say this, right? It, uh, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way either, but it almost seems like nobody's act would actually seems like they would be opposed to the idea, yet it seems countercultural when you'd sort just getting be up below the surface. So uh, just curious, um, I don't know. I don't know if you want to respond to what I just said, like, uh, but it, it seems like it's it's an idea that should be obvious, but it isn't. So what is it about ourselves? Well, I mean, it's made about you and me that why why is it hard <laughs> to get that right without pointing fingers at somebody else? I, you know, it was um, for me, it was um, it was the late, great Tim Keller. Tim mm. Keller just passed away. He did a Gospel Coalition lecture man, this must have been 07, 08, um, on Christ-centered preaching. Um, and I had been a preacher for, I guess, about seven, eight years at that point. And I remember hearing Keller say that all of the, all scripture is ultimately about Jesus. So even like, oh, this, the story of David and Goliath is not a story for uh, moralizing how little people can do great things and you can defeat the giants in your life. Uh, this is a picture of how, um, Jesus, uh, emptied himself, uh, taking on the form of a servant to defeat the giants of sin and death. And I had never really considered what we call the Christocentric hermeneutic, um, until I first heard Keller, uh, say, and it, it transformed my preaching. It, I, I just, I, it just, it transformed my preaching and transformed how I began to read scripture, um, particularly the old Testament. And I think that it's, it, it should be commonplace. Although I've read some of the critiques, um, of the Christocentric hermeneutic, not all, uh, followers of Jesus, uh, appreciate it. And some would say that, well, you're, you're distancing yourself from, you know, the more historic critical view of scripture, especially with the Old Testament, you're not honoring the Hebrew scriptures. And, but I'll say that, well, I, there's multiple readings of scripture. So I have a, 
chapter and centering Jesus on a Jesus-centered reading of Scripture. And I use Aquinas's four senses. Actually, Aquinas talks about two senses or two meanings of Scripture, the the literal and the spiritual. But the spiritual has three subcategories. So in my mind, it's four four senses or four mm-hmm. meanings. And one is the one is the literal and the literal historical. And I always want to start there, particularly in the Old Testament. I want to understand Old Testament texts in their cultural, historical, Jewish context. Um, but I'm not Jewish. <laughs> and so uh, Hebrew scripture has been incorporated into Christian scripture. And so as a Christian, I'm not just reading it historically, literally, but I'm also reading it allegorically. And I, it's uh, Brad Jerzak, the Orthodox theologian, calls it reading in the Emmaus way, because Jesus on the road to Emmaus opens up the scripture starting in the law of Moses through the prophets, uh, showing the things concerning himself. And of course, you know, Paul does this in, in first Corinthians. He looks back um, at the rock in the wilderness says that rock was Christ. And so I think we have biblical and a historical root here. Like, so to me, I'm with you. It should be like, yeah, this is what Christians do. But back to this just vitriol um, in our world and where it's infiltrated the church is in these, these culture wars that Christians want to engage in. They recognize the loss of the, the place of privilege the church once had in our culture. And they want to fight these culture wars. Well, it's hard to fight culture wars and love your enemies and turn the other cheek and blessed are the meek. So there are some Christians that I don't want to read Jesus in the Old Testament. I want David the warrior, right? I need that to embolden my warrior mentality in these culture wars. We have to win the culture back for God. And I just find that highly problematic because we're first and foremost followers of Jesus. And so everything has to follow in the ways of Jesus. We can't proclaim the truth of Jesus in any way we want. We proclaim the truth of Jesus in the ways of Jesus. And so I think some Christians uh, resist the kind of finding Jesus in all of scripture because they actually like, for example, the, the warrior side of, of King David and, and other Old Testament leaders. Yeah, and, and that's a, one of the my parts of your book that I really appreciate and, and just kind of knowing you from afar. I mean, I follow you on Instagram and stuff. So like I like I saw when I, I you put a lot of pictures of yourself being out in the outdoors. Um, I think hopefully this isn't right. You got bit by a snake re, like at some I point. Did. Too. Yeah. So like here's a guy, you got bit by a snake, which not I don't know anybody that's bit, been bit by it. It was in the woods. Snake. So it, it wasn't a... like you stuck your hand in an aquarium. It was literally no, out in the woods. In the woods. Yeah. So so you're like country. at some level, you know, I'm looking at you and I don't mean this in due respect. You could say you're a man's man. And if in the <laughs> kind of tradition, you're an outdoors person, you're out doing camping sure. stuff, men, you know, yeah. like technically the cliched, sure. stereotypical man stuff, right? But then in your book, you actually have a pretty good critique of, um, you know, it always needs to find, but this whole idea of like toxic masculinity, which then, which sort of privileges, like you just said, this warrior side, which there's texts that are like that, but you bring it back to the lamb. So just talk a little bit about how you use the lamb metaphor to sort of subvert or knock off the rough edges sure. of things. Cause we want, you know, there's nothing wrong being masculine. There's nothing wrong being sure. feminine and the wrong sort of being a little bit of both, which some people are, I don't necessarily talk about sexual orientation and stuff, but you know, not everybody's like a Uber male and not everyone's an Uber female. If you, uh, you have the whole spectrum. So just talk about how the lamb just kind of critiques these easy poles that we find ourselves in these days. Well, I in the book, uh, I think it's in the first chapter, I use the phrase militant masculinity uh, that I picked up from Kristen Dumay. When I read uh, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, Kristen Dumay's book, I thought, wow. I've and she ruined everything through. that we grew up in, right? I mean, it's <laughs> I like Dops and I everybody, lived, right? <laughs> I, I, lived, I lived through so much of that. Me too. And, uh, you know, I'm the son and grandson of veterans and 
I do. I love the outdoors and I like doing hard things and climbing mountains, camping in the back country, uh, getting bit by copperhead snakes, the whole thing. Um, but I, I think and so there's nothing wrong with, with that, but I also like to read books and, uh, I like, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the nerdy things, you know, like that just as happy in a library as I am in the back country, uh, camping. Um, but the, the problem with the sort of masculine, uh, militant masculinity that Christian Dumay documents well, all the different iterations and it's still around. It hasn't mm -hmm. gone anywhere. Um, I think the Trump administration and, and Trumpism has given a spotlight to that. And so that kind of tough guy fighter mentality, uh, it's still around. Um, and so Jesus is a warrior of, of, of a certain kind, but Jesus, so I have this line, I think it's towards the end of the book that Jesus as portrayed in the book of revelation is the slain lamb. So Jesus rules and reigns not by slaying his enemies, but by being slain. So Jesus is a warrior of sin of, of, uh, in one sense, but he's a warrior who warred against sin and the devil and death itself. And so Jesus ways of enacting warfare was through fasting, through silence and solitude, through prayer, through meekness. Um, it, in, in, um, contrast to modern rulers and tyrants and warriors, Jesus wages war not by the power of love or not by the love of power, but by the power of love. And so it is a kind of strength, but it's a, it's a lamb like strength. So it's a strength that's made known in meekness, self-control restraint, um, which is not popular among the uh, militant masculine crowd. But for me in my own journey, cause I, I was in, I was into all that stuff, um, especially in the kind of mid two thousands. Uh, but I couldn't stay faithful to the ways of Jesus and still imbibe on that hyper militant masculinity. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. I had this exact same experience. I just listened to her book. Uh, it's just been this year, actually listened. And I, and I just kept thinking like, this is so funny. I like know everything that she's talking about. I wasn't necessarily immersed in all the stuff, but I thought, boy, everybody like that got me to kind of where I was that I went into the ministry in some level. I listened to Dobson. I mean, good sure. Lord, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, I went oh, to yeah. a Gothard seminar once upon a time. I didn't like oh, it. And I remember never going back after the first day, but I actually was in a culture that invited people to go to those kind of things. Um, sure. So it's just, it is really interesting. And I appreciated what, I appreciate what your book does with that too. Cause I think it's really important uh to take the lamb because it's not a weak figure, which is what you just said. And it's actually some late, like even the whole idea that he was a lamb that was slain. But I mean, the whole point of that isn't, it wasn't, he was, he wasn't, he was, he was not trying not to, he wasn't trying, he wasn't in the middle of fighting. He wasn't the warrior that goes down swinging. Mm -hmm. um, he actually is the lamb that essentially surrenders into that, even though he didn't have to. Right. So yeah, right. Uh, that's, to me, that's the ultimate powerful symbol. And I, you know, and I think, um, I mean, your reading of Revelation brings that. Talk a little bit about, um, again, I don't want to give out your whole book away. I'm going to ask you a couple more specific sure, questions, but but talk about like how the book of Revelation of all things kind of helps you to get into this this place. Cause that's that's a tricky book, but that has has that was part of the background story to this book. Right. That's where it started. So I um I'm a lectionary uh, fan, so I follow the daily office lectionary. It guides my Bible reading. So there's a Psalm, Old Testament, Epistle, Gospel reading for every day. And I'm just the Epistle reading. This was fall of 2020. The Epistle reading was Revelation. And I've taught the book of Revelation um, all the way through. I've preached from various texts. And whenever I am reading it devotionally, I just let the story be the story. I'm not, I'm not trying to get an idea out of it. I'm just letting those images wash over me. Well, in all my teaching I've done in Revelation, I always say, keep your eye on the lamb because the book of Revelation is not a revelation of the end times. According to John the Revelator, uh, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So there's all sorts of fantastic images in the book, but primarily what the book is doing is revealing Jesus to us. And the primary image of Jesus in the book of Revelation is the Lamb. And so I was in um, Revelation 7, and I was reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Um, I Every two years, I change translations. The That's Daily good. Office Lectionary is a two-year cycle. So every two years through the lectionary, I just change translations. And so I was in the New Revised Standard, and in Revelation 7, 17, in the NRSV, the image there is of the Lamb at the center of the throne. And that it was one of those moments in just your Bible reading that that just that image just stuck with me. Like all throughout the day, I was just thinking about that image. And I realized, well, you know, that's what we need. You know, as, as I was sharing earlier about the backstory of the book, that, you know, with this indic- addiction to antagonisms and the hostility and the division and yes, militant masculinity and the desire to put ourselves <laughs> at the center of the throne. That's what we need. We need not just Jesus at the center, but Jesus as the Lamb of God at the center. Because what John the Baptist says before the baptism of Jesus, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we believe in Jesus, but sometimes we don't take time just to behold, to stand in awe, to sit quietly and meditate on this uh, image of Jesus. Again, John the Baptist gives it to us, and it's replete in the book of Revelation to just behold, because that's what was happening to me on that day when I was reading in Revelation 7. I just, I was just beholding uh, the Lamb who had been slain at the center of the throne, just beholding that, because I believe we become like that which we behold. And that kind of lost art of of meditating on biblical images like the Lamb has such transformative power. It, it has for me. Yeah, and I want you to stop right there and tease that out a little bit because I did want to get into some of the contemplative stuff that you do personally, but also in the book. I mean, sure. we touched a little bit about your Jesus-centered hermeneutic. You have a little bit on the, on the Spirit, and then you have the stuff on the Jesus prayer. So you basically have a, and that's the first piece. You do the spiritual formation, then right. you do the virtues, then you do the 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 church. That's it's like the three parts of of your book for those who are right. who are, who are listening. So. You know, uh, there's something really powerful about the contemplative stuff that I know that I missed most of my life. That I've been kind of a uh, ever since I've kind of get to my own personal crisis, I've just long, just sat in contemplative spirituality, and it's, and it's helped me so much. But like, you know, like I had a, I don't know, another renewal thing just even a couple of um, Easter's ago to to uh, what just essentially, I just sat on. And, and again, people would question whether this is even the original text of Luke. It's the um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what right. they do. And then I was comparing that. And then I was thinking about Jesus healing the guy that when he chops his ear off, and I just sat on that. And I thought, and it was and it was so powerful. I, I literally just kind of meditated on that for a couple of weeks, and and then I thought, you know, I'd be a Christian even if that was the that was the end of the story and Jesus was yeah. just dead because I'd want to be like that somehow if I could literally look at people <laughs> off a cross and say father forgive them for they know not what they do and it's like felt my heart strangely warmed all over again so yes. so talk a little bit i mean part of your book really is to get people to have those literally visceral not just yeah. intellectual ugh, just the text just grabs you. So just, just say a little bit about that, uh, that, that experience from your own perspective and what you're trying to teach out of your book. I think it's in a footnote and it may be in a previous book, but it may be in a footnote where I say that I am trying to avoid, uh, what Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith calls thinking thingism. (laughs) <laughs> right. So uh, Smith talks about, you know, we're not just brains on a stick. And now I, I believe in theological intellectual development. I think that is a part of it. I mean, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Uh, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And part of that is and learn from me. And so I think there is some theological development that's absolutely necessary and it shapes who we are. But I agree that 
education at the level of intellect is not enough if we are going to become people like Jesus. And so it's interesting that the the first part of my book is about spiritual formation and then virtue, but those things are really interwoven ideas for me. Um, because as a pastor for 24 years now, what I've learned about people is we do what we want to do. And so how do we shape our wants or how do we shape our loves? How do we shape our heart's desires? And, um, in the middle part of the book, I, I spent a lot of time talking about the, the practice of virtue, uh, and sort of the Thomas Aristotelian sort of way we be, we become patient people by doing patient things. Um, but then there's the contemplative tradition and don't use that language because no. for me, what's been most impactful is really Eastern Orthodox spirituality. Um, so iconography, so I got my icons there behind me, but there's times I'll pull them off the wall and, um, in using icons, um, in times of meditation. And then I did a whole chapter on the Jesus prayer, which is the real foundation of Orthodox spirituality. And what I found in incorporating the Jesus prayer, not just in the mornings, but throughout the day, sometimes in the middle of the night, actually, uh, one of the things I've learned about the Jesus prayer is as we pray it repetitively, it becomes a part of us. And it's right at the, 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 not the tip of our tongue, but like the very top portion of our heart, right in the front part of our mind. Um, Callistos Ware, who I quote from, uh, the great metropolitan, uh, for the Eastern Orthodox church who passed away in the last 18 months or so. Um, what I learned from him is that, um, Orthodox monks, uh, in praying to Jesus prayer repetitively will often wake themselves up at night praying it, which has never actually happened to me, but what does happen regularly. And it happened last night. We had a storm blow through about 4am that woke me up. And when I'm awakened in the night now, you know, you always orient yourself, what's happening, what's going on. But then when you try to fall back asleep, I instinctively, I did it last night. I start praying the Jesus prayer and it does not take too many times of praying that 10 word prayer before I experience the, the stillness, uh, which is the goal um, for Orthodox spirituality. Um, and then I, I fall back asleep. Um, so I've experienced so many benefits from Orthodox spirituality, particularly the Jesus prayer that I wanted to write on that. But in a book about centering Jesus, it's also how I have centered Jesus in my life of prayer because of the four strands of the of the Jesus prayer, according to Klistos, where the, the fourth is the veneration of the holy name. And so Lord, so the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. Um, sometimes we tag on a sinner, uh, but I normally, I normally only do that one time in morning prayer, but throughout the day or in the middle of the night, it's just the 10 words without a sinner. But that Lord Jesus Christ, that declaration and veneration of the holy name has helped in in my prayer life to keep Jesus centered. Amen. Yeah. When I teach a centering prayer, uh, my own little version, I always lead in. I teach people to go in with a Jesus prayer. Um, just to, to, And then I just say, use Jesus as your prayer word. And so in a sense, it's like you're riffing on the Jesus prayer as, a, as an anchor, even in the middle of uh, just contemplative type of stuff. Because yeah, everything you just said resonates. And I, I was also going to ask you, um, do you ever use the, a center? And you, you actually do, because uh, it is interesting. The prayer changes slightly, and it's still powerful both ways. But uh, yeah, there, there's there's power in that. So, so thank you. Um, talk a little bit about the virtues again. I I love the setup on your on your book. Um, I'm a newbie to a lot of this stuff. Like uh, I discovered, I was interviewing a actually an atheist who practices Stoicism, and we were I was talking to him about relationships between Christianity and Stoicism, and one of the things we anchored on was the the four. Um, the four virtues that, that courage, you know, wisdom, uh, temperance, and uh, injustice. 
as the and that's the foundation that Christianity shares with Greco-Roman philosophy. And then you have the theological virtues, and your whole the middle part of your book you lead in uh, to that, which I love. That it's, to me, it's like very. Again, I'm not putting labels in your book, but that you know you have to know deep medieval theology, even it'd be Roman Catholicism in some ways, or, or Eastern Orthodox stuff to get to that. But I. So, so that, I guess that surprised me that popped in, though I loved it. And I think this is the way to reteach the Christian faith, which I'm guessing that's why you put it in your book. So faith, hope, and yeah. love. I mean, it's like a no-brainer, but it's not, again, right? So well, just talk to, a little bit about that. Yeah, well, to, so it's Aquinas, again, drawing on Aquinas, you know, calls faith, hope, and love the, the theological virtues, the big God virtues. They're virtues in the sense that they're given to us uh, by God. I just am saddened that virtue ethics has really taken a backseat to other predominant ethical theories. Again, people may not study ethical theories, but just the way just the way that they live. So my experience has been your your run-of-the-mill follower of Jesus, um, mainline denominational, evangelical, non-denomination, Catholic, of whatever variety. And we'll just stick here with the Western church. My experience uh, pastoring in the U.S., the average Christian, um, is processing things ethically from the perspective of consequentialism. In other words, right and wrong is determined by outcomes. And of course, there is a part of that which is very, very true. If you're raising kids, that's when the kids are little, you talk to them about right and wrong because you do wrong and here's the effects of that, right? So you don't lie to mom and dad because lying will lead to, and you talk about the consequences. So I don't want to disregard that, um, but it's too easy for um, the 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 uh, ends to justify the means um, and say, well, we can, we can reach a Christ-like outcome any way we want, as long as we get the outcome that's desired. And that's just not the way the Western church has thought about ethics for such a long time. Whether you know Aquinas or not, um, virtue ethics or, you know, what most people would think of as sort of integrity or character, this was just part and parcel of being a Christian. And I thought it really, really was. Um, and then the rise of white Christian nationalism, um, which centered around Trumpism again, I thought, I thought this really has to be an outlier. This really has to be on the periphery. But no, so many Christians buying into, well, it doesn't matter how we act as long as we get a certain outcome, was just shocking to me. And so there was a revival of virtue ethics um, in the 80s, early 90s. Um, I've read you know, particularly Stanley Hauerwas, and there's you know, other figures um, but it certainly is not popular. And it's interesting. I'm so glad you asked about that section because of my book, because a lot of people aren't even asking about it. They just want to skip right over it, that section. They're like, let's talk about the spiritual formation. Let's get to politics and justice, the virtue part, which is the heart of the book. They kind of want to skip over. Um, but it's 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 a little pet project of mine um, to try to reorient our ethical imaginations around being. Right. So in classic virtue ethics, uh, they talk about uh, uh, doing and being. So we we become the being based in what we do. And then our doing becomes fueled by our being. So it's very, very cyclic. And um, of course, very popular in, in, in Catholic moral theology, Protestants have a little bit of an allergy towards anything that sounds like, you know, good works, uh, which is just absurd because that is whether, whether, uh, Protestants, particularly in, I'm thinking like 19th century, 20th century, they may not have been able to articulate Catholic moral theology. They still believed in the value of character, of integrity, of becoming a person of faith, hope, and love. Um, but I just, I've seen that go by the wayside. And so, I really want to bring that to the forefront again, that we might emphasize it and reject those temptations to shortcut decisions towards some type of moral end. Um, I love the Gandhi quote um, 
that uh, that the that the means uh, are just the ends in the process of becoming. Um, and I think that's the way virtue ethics work. The the being and the doing, the means and the ends are all tied together. And um, and I'm saddened to see people trying to short circuit that. No, honestly, I, I, that was one of my favorite parts of your book because I've been. I, I mean, I thought you did it really well, and I've been thinking through this. It comes out of my own interest and my own dark night of the soul stuff when I was just trying to figure out like what's true. What do I do if I lose everything that I believed in and I still want to be a certain kind of person? And so, like I learned. I mean, what helped me is I read all the Stoics that weren't even Christians, yeah. the, and they talk about the four virtues before you get to yes. faith, hope, and love. And I thought, okay, this is more moral than what I typically have encountered. And I wasn't trying to judge, but I was just thinking this is like, and, I, and then I thought, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I, I really like that section. So I'm, I'm actually glad I'm the first person to brought up because I thought it was really <laughs> critical because to me, the thing that's lacking, it. It isn't so much even biblical knowledge. It may not even be theological knowledge because like you, you already said, like I used to be a brain on a stick and I've been trying sure. to have a body for probably the last 10 years is what I like to say. But in one of the things that I realized I didn't have was um, an operating system that let me take the stuff in my head and manifest it into actually something beautiful that's real, not just up here. And so I could, yeah. you know... And, and that's where I see the virtue stuff actually in it, because it sure. gives you an, you know, it's not workspace, but, but literally it is, it lets you put into action the beautiful things that we yeah. actually say we believe. And so I, you know, I just want to say, I love what you're doing. So thank you for uh, and there, there, And there's, there's Christian roots to it. I mean, obviously it's, you know, this is Aristotelian, so it's, it's mm -hmm. just right there in, in Greek philosophy. I have read that, you know, some of the early Christians, they admired Cicero, for example, and, and the Stoics um, because of their virtuous lives. So there's some overlap, but there, there's some deep historical roots within the church, Cyprian in particular, I think of, you know, Cyprian had um, his, I can't remember what Cyprian called it. He didn't call it rules, but when people were in the process of getting ready for baptism, he would have these list of things to do. And it was kind of built on the idea of habit, again, back to Aristotle, that if you're going to be a Christian, you need to form Christian habits. And uh, so Cyprian would talk about habitus, this, this kind of disposition within our soul. And I've just discovered, again, it's grown on my own personal journey that I am very selfish, <laughs> borderline hedonistic, and that I need habits if I'm going to be a person of faith, hope, and love. Um, that's not just more Bible study, though I'm dedicated to that, but I need, I need habits if I'm going to be a person who is self-giving, who practices self-denial who practices restraint. I don't want to just consciously have to think about it. I want to become a person of self-restraint so that it becomes my instincts. And so the early church talked about this. Cyprian is first I think of. Um, so it's a deep historic Christian root here um, that I think so many more modern evangelical, post-evangelical kind of Christians aren't aware of. I agree, Augustine. All the all the folks uh, draw all these sure. things out, and then obviously you've drawn from Aquinas, but he just he kind of um, well, he was brilliant in his own way, but he sure. synthesized all that stuff and made it really clear statement. So it's yeah, it's good. Yeah, I just want to say I really like that part of your book and Thank appreciate. It. So uh, again, I don't want I don't uh, I'll try to wrap things up here. You have a few more minutes. We can keep talking, or you yeah, let's keep going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, I have some stuff at the end I want to ask you, and I'll ask you about the writing. But let me ask. Let's just, I'll just ask you one more big question about your book and you can give as much or a little way as you want. But so like when you get to the third section, you know, you're talking about like, you know, what's a church look like that's centered on Jesus. So, so just kind of paint that picture a little bit and you can go as, as much as you want into that here for a few minutes and maybe I'll ask a follow-up, but yeah, what's a church look like if they do the spiritual formation practices, um, pr practice the vert, uh, building up these virtues in a robust way in a community. So what's the community look like that, that, that does that? Well, I, a community, so there's a, there's a chapter on the Jesus centered church and what that looks like. And this is really what we're trying to do at our church. 
And it's a, it's a, I think a Jesus centered church within community is a, is a church where first Jesus is proclaimed. Um, you know, we can come up with all sorts of gimmicks to entertain people, attract people. And you know what, there, there is some practices of Christian hospitality that require us to contextualize our language and things like that, that I'm all for. But I think what's most attractive about the church is Jesus. And so how do we proclaim Jesus? Well, one of the great discoveries uh, for me and for our congregation uh, is the liturgical calendar, the church year. So growing up uh, Southern Baptist and then charismatic, we had no interest in the calendar. Um, I absolutely love the liturgical seasons, in part because in a six-month span, you can tell and retell, enter and re-enter the story of Jesus. And all Christians, nearly all Christians, celebrate Christmas and Easter and because it's incarnation and resurrection, right? These are the two biggies. Um, but the liturgical calendar gives us seasons uh, to prepare for that. So there's a season to prepare for Christmas, a season to prepare for Easter. And so if you have practices and traditions for Advent, the four weeks before Christmas, um, and Lent, the six and a half weeks before Easter, if you will enter into those seasons, it makes those celebrations uh, so much bigger, grander. They, they really, really pop. You don't need another gimmick. Uh, use the church calendar. And so for our non-denominational congregation, where we're really interdenominational, um, we spend a lot of time teaching um, and explaining. You know, Advent is not an English word in our English Bibles, but here's why we do it. Same thing with Lent. And when we emphasize the fact that the calendar is telling the story of Jesus, most people get it. And then sort of like to pull the curtain back a little bit from a leadership perspective, calendar creates culture. And we've learned that. So proclaiming Jesus through the calendar is one. And then celebrating Jesus, um, I think, is what the community does together, which for us is centered around the table. So again, did not practice weekly communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist. And now we um, serve the body and blood of Christ twice a week. We have a Wednesday noon prayer service that I lead in our prayer chapel and then Sunday morning worship. And um, that has been a powerful way to keep Jesus the center of our community. Because it's like we, because I'm on the teaching team, and it's like no matter what we're preaching, we know it can lead us to the table. And we practice um, an open table. And we believe in the real presence of Christ at the table. And so we, but we, we've witnessed it. And week after week, I almost always serve communion and people will come and I'll look them in the eyes. Usually my wife is serving the bread and I'm serving the cup and I'll look them in the eyes and say the blood of Christ shed for you. And some people will have tears in their eyes. Some people will be coming through that I had just counseled that week or people I've prayed with. I know they're going through a crisis and there sometimes I'm overwhelmed emotionally because I believe and I, and I sense, and I can even see it on people's faces that they are encountering Jesus through the celebration of Holy communion. And I've been doing that for 12 years, twice a week. And, uh, and it's lost none of its specialness. You know, that's the big you know, criticism. If you do weekly communion, it'll lose its sacredness. Um, but I like what Will Williman said, you know, Williman said that you should celebrate the Lord's Supper as often as you tell your wife, you love her. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and, uh, so we, um, you know, the, the calendar in proclaiming Jesus by telling the story from Advent through Pentecost and the centrality of the Eucharist, um, has what's really formed us into a Jesus church. And so one of the things we did is, well, the last two presidential election cycles, we have participated in election day communion. Hmm. There was a group of Mennonite pastors that started this a couple years ago, uh, maybe eight years ago. I can't remember the first time, but the idea was you offer a very brief communion service or you just have your sanctuary open on election day 
for people to receive communion. We did a little service. We've done it um, after the last two presidential elections. And um, what a powerful experience to say the ballot box might divide us, but the table unites us. That the table is really the only dividing line. And what it is, it's a dividing line of demarcation between the Trinity and humanity. Um, You know, we all come to the table the same way, um, recognizing our sinfulness and the brokenness of God's good world. And we're just coming to all commune with Jesus together. Um, those moments have been really, really powerful. So yeah, the calendar and, and weekly communion, um, have been such powerfully Jesus centered experiences for our church. And just the last question, talk a little bit about how then the Jesus-centered church that's now worshipped in this beautiful way, how does that then manifest or incarnate as little lambs of God in the world if everything goes well? Sure. So we like to think of ourselves as the people of God as gathered and then scattered. So we're gathered for weekly worship, and then we're scattered into our neighborhoods, workplaces, and schools. And I, what I see as, as sort of then our sort of missional life is that we are partnering in what God is already doing. And and the biblical word for God's work in the community is justice, justice, which has gotten overladen with political connotations is actually a Bible word. Mm -hmm. It's, it's justice is a word that belongs to the church. Justice is how I, as I've surveyed the story of scripture, justice is really the work of God to set right a world gone wrong. And so what we do is we're not carrying Jesus to the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, uh, because, well, we believe that God is already at work. Um, in all of those different places of our community. So what we see ourselves as doing is advocating for justice in whatever way that 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 we're sort of wired. Rich Velotis in The Deeply Formed Life talks about justice burdens, like mm-hmm. God gives different people justice burdens. It could be for homelessness, or it could be poverty housing. It could be uh, victims of domestic abuse. It could be neglected children. So we, we all don't have the same burden, but I think God does give us a certain burden for something just not right in our community. And so as we are then the scattered people of God, then we get to go into that area where God's burdened us to cooperate with God's work uh, in bringing transformation and salvation and light and love uh, into those areas. Um, but I like to see it in terms of working with God. This is God. Justice is God's work. And we get to participate in that um, and and see lives transformed. Really helpful. It's good. Yeah. I want to ask you just a writing question before we get to sure. the um, kind of rapid fire stuff. Um, I actually meant to ask you this right at the beginning. I skipped my question and got right into your book instead. But one, one of the things that I've appreciated about you, and again, there's a lot of pastors listen to this podcast, and I know a lot of folks are always interested in writing, and here you are. Um, you're not just even the senior pastor who can just set their own schedule. You're, you, you're on staff, and, yes. and you still, I mean, I find it remarkable. You've written, again, you've written several books over the last decade. So yes. talk a little bit about how writing how you make time for writing. Love to hear, I mean, like, do you write off an outline? Do you just like to kind of create? Are you a dabbler? Talk a little bit about your process, but also talk about how you find the time to actually do the research, the thinking that lets you then produce. I mean, this, this is an outstanding book. I've just loved reading it, a lot of depth. And I mean, it, the way that you're talking to interview, that's, I mean, that's how the book comes across really clear and compelling. So yeah, just talk a little about your writing. And uh, it, well, first I would say for me, writing is a passion. Um, I don't think everyone's called to write and that's fine. Um, it's a, it's a passion that I love and also find frustrating. <laughs> um, but it's, so it's, 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 it's sort of a, for me, it's an extension of my call as a pastor to teach, not just in groups or from the pulpit, but in, in writing. So it's a passion. So there's, a, I have words and they have to come out. Okay. And, uh, so first it's a passion as far as process. Um, 
I'm just always thinking, I guess. Um, so I, 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 I jog three days a week and, mm. um, many times I'll grab, uh, my phone out of my little fanny pack and I'm either thumbing in notes or I'm using, trying to use Siri and creating a note. because I'll have an idea. Uh, sometimes I've been running and I'll actually put those ideas on Twitter, um, just cause I can get that out there and then I can go find it again. Um, so once a seed for a book is planted, like, so centering Jesus, um, uh, the process from there is, uh, to kind of create an outline, like, okay, here's the, the big picture of what I want to communicate in this book. What are like chapters looking like? So I create an outline and then I really work with that outline for months. Probably I'm just always putting ideas very often when I'm reading in my devotional life, like, oh, that could go in the book. And that's happened more than once. So once I finish morning prayer, which I include my Bible reading in that, um, I'll make sure to put those passages in that chapter in the outline. And um, then from there, it's a matter of uh, publishers and due dates. Um, you know, in a uh, big NFL football fan, and they say with uh, football contract negotiations that deadlines make deals. And so then once the outline's done and I've secured a publisher and I have a, a due date, then I can plan out a writing schedule, which for me is primarily on Fridays. Mm. So Fridays uh, is Sabbath rest for me. I don't um, have appointments. I don't do phone calls. Don't do Zooms. Try not to check my email on Fridays. Just one day unplugged from church work. And uh, so I understand Sabbath is a time for delight. And so we have things that we do. I usually will do my longest run of the week on Friday. Uh, we do pizza and Chipotle uh, with the kids, even my adult kids, even the ones who got married and moved uh, out comes back for Friday pizza and Chipotle and we'll, we'll watch something on Netflix. So it's a day of delight. Well, because writing is a part of that passion. Um, when I have a writing deadline, then I'm um, like a publishing deadline that I'm writing on Fridays, which is part of my Sabbath. And I'll write three to four hours. Wow. And, um, and so then, you know, Sometimes um, when things uh, ease up in my schedule, I have an appointment that cancels and I got a wide open hour. Sometimes I'll say, well, I'll go back. I'm on chapter seven. I might work on chapter seven for just an hour, but that's really sporadic. The more the rhythm is, is, is to write on Fridays. Um, and then of course, then the editing, which is the real work of writing a book is the editing. Then I'm, um, I'll, I'll do some of my editing at night. Um, and, uh, the, but Friday I'll spend a couple hours if, if I've gotten a manuscript back from an editor and, uh, they want me to work on some things. I'll again, do that on Fridays. That's good. Any tips? I mean, this is going to be a long answer, but it doesn't have to be like, uh, cause you, you're, you're, a, you're a pastor as far as like a platform, but you've gotten book contracts. Um, that's not the easiest thing to do. And, you know, you're not like a pastor of a 10,000 person church where, you know, no. you're going to sell them. So it's like, um, it's not no. easy. So no. And you've had to work. I mean, there's a lot of uh, no's built into all this question too, but like, what what have you learned like to encourage somebody that's maybe a, a pastor and, you know, a, a, a sort of normal sized church, which is what, where you essentially are too, that but you get book contracts. So like, how do you build a platform that lets you be publishable maybe well, five years from now, let's say? Yeah, it, it it's like any other field. Um, you just have to start writing and putting it out there. I started a blog years ago. Now I have a Substack, which I, I've used on and off. Um, but I say start writing online, uh, start producing good content. So I had a blog, and so in like 2014, um, I wrote a pretty lengthy um, response to uh, Just War Theory. A, a Southern Baptist uh, seminary professor teaches ethics wrote what I thought was the the most sloppy um, explanation of just war theory. So I wrote like this 2,500 word response, uh, sort of questioning the just war assumption and uh, put it on my blog. And then uh, the organizers at Missio Alliance picked it up and mm -hmm. they said, Hey, uh, can we, can we take this and put it on Missio? And I said, sure. And then from that, they said, Hey, do you want to write for, for Missio Alliance? And I said, sure. Uh, so I started writing for free. Um, I've written, I don't know, over 65 articles now with Missio Alliance. 
Um, so I started my own blog and then it was a, a larger platformed blog. And, um, all the time while I was writing for Missio, I was self-publishing books. So I've, uh, done six books, um, four self-published two with traditional publishers. And, um, so self-publishing print on demand is as easy as it, and affordable as it's ever been. I spent way too much on my first self-published book. Um, now it is very affordable. So start writing a blog um, and get it out there. Keep writing. Because I wrote for years and years and years. Um, and then start to put things together. Um, my two most popular self-published books are like 22,000 words, 23,000 words, or 90, 100-page books are small. Um, but they caught on. And um, I think that helped my platform a little bit. And then, you know, you have to be really thick skinned uh, um, in writing book proposals. And and I, I wrote a lot of proposals and I got a nice stack of rejection letters. And uh, but by God's grace, was able to secure two uh, publishers. And I'm just now in the process of securing a literary agent, which I haven't mm. had before. An agent makes all this a lot easier. Um, but it's been six books and now I'm at a place where agents are, I'm starting to have conversations with agents and, uh, I think I've got it narrowed down to who I'm going to go with. No, that's really good. It's super helpful. I almost think we could uh, have another episode just to talk about that. <laughs> Cause I mean, you lay it out. I mean, it's always funny, your overnight success after you've been doing it for a long time. Right. So, but I think that was really helpful. Cause I get asked a lot, like, Hey, I'd love to write a book and, um, you know, I have my own story. It wasn't easy for me. It's gotten easier all of a sudden, but it wasn't my, easy for a long my time. First, my first self-published book sold six copies on Amazon its first year. And I hate to admit that I spent $1,500 with a self-publisher to what they call author subsidy. This was back in 2008. It's gotten much cheaper now. Interestingly enough, though, um, as my third and fourth self-published book began to take off. I began to see sales in my other books, yeah. um, which is kind of the way it works. But the emphasis for me, for pastors who want to write is just focus on good content Good, um, and good content will find an audience and, and don't reduplicate. I think that's in all of my book proposals I've written, you always have to write, you know, sort of uh, what's the uniqueness of this? What's the unique perspective? Um, you know, don't just mimic, uh, what you see out there, but, but find your voice and hone your craft and keep writing and putting it out there. And if you want to write a book, you can do that. Um, and I would love, yeah, we could have a longer conversation about this because I've learned so much from blogging, self-publishing, Substack, the whole thing. Um, there's a lot there. Well, I'm going to put you, I'm going to actually, I'll reach back out to you. I think that would be a good episode down the road here. Sure. So I, I will reach back out to you in a, a few months. We'll get something else going there. Yeah, let me just ask you a few quick questions. Appreciate all your time too. But th so these, these are the, these are both, the, I think the fun ones. I ask everybody okay. that comes on the show here. So, uh, you know, you've written several books. You had N.T. Wright. I know that you did. That was the book I think I engaged you yes. with. And then uh, you have the, this newer book that's come out. So you've written a fair number of books. And presumably these are some of the books that you've always wanted to write. Is Is there like yeah. a book though that, you're uh, almost afraid to write or you just feel like you're called to write that might be coming down in the down the road at some point? Well, I have an outline for a marriage book that I have pitched and lots of de decline rejection letters. But I just I don't know. I sometimes I got a lot of self-doubt with that. So it's it's a book that is based in the pre-marriage counseling I've done as a pastor for years and years and years, but it's not like this is my thing. Mm. Like, you know, some pastors, like they really hone in on that. That's their thing. That's their burden, right? Helping married couples. And so they do marriage seminars and all that. Like, I don't do that. <laughs> my wife and I don't do that. We don't, we don't go to marriage conferences or marriage weekends, marriage enrichment things. We don't read books in that area. It's just not, it's not my thing. So I'm a little, there's a little trepidation, like, I don't know, but it, 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 it again is a marriage book that would kind of come from my unique perspective, which is a little bit more theological. Um, it would include a critique of the idolatry of marriage, which is probably not a very marketable marriage <laughs> book. You know, couples want to know how to have a better relationship and all that. And I cover the, the, the pragmatics of communication and conflict resolution and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
but uh, I don't know how marketable it is because it has more of a theological orientation, but it is a book that's there. It, it's on the back burner. So we'll see. I don't know. All right, cool. Yeah, and talk a little bit about, I mean, it's just, some of this is in, in the book itself, but like uh, if you're thinking about your own container, your rule of life, like what actually keeps you grounded, allows you to be an effective pastor, an author, husband, father, all the different roles that you are. What's 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 your rhythms look like? Well, l- learning um, to practice the daily office, which I'm still not a master of, um, l- rhythms of prayer, learning liturgical and contemplative forms of prayer. We talked a little bit about that. That is, there's days that that's what grounds me. Without that, I think I'd float away. Um, Sabbath rest, um, which I mentioned on Friday, um, you know, sort of a, a whole person um, view of just my own self. So one of the great things um, I absorbed while doing my seminary at Oral Roberts University is their whole person education model. And uh, we are not just brains on a stick. Uh, We have an emotional side, a spiritual side, and a physical side. I started jogging a couple days a week uh, in my 30s. I just turned 49, so it's probably been 14 years. And I run uh, three days a week at a minimum, rain, snow, ice, sun, clouds. There's times I don't want to run, but I'm out there. Again, the power of habit. But just sort of staying in good cardiovascular health has done so much for my connectivity to God, my sense of of health, um, my mental health. There's been times that moments of overwhelming stress um, have been dealt with with a long run, um, sort of, you know, sort of beating that stress out of my uh, feet as I pound the pavement. So prayer, Sabbath rhythms jogging a couple of days a week. These are, these are the things that have grounded me. Good. Thank you. And then the last question, maybe the hardest of them all, if you were just going to boil uh, down to like two to three books that have uh, profoundly shaped you outside of the Bible itself, uh, what would be uh, those, those handful of books? Oh, it's, <laughs> I always want to, I always want to pick a Eugene Peterson book. Um, but I, I usually will just go with Wynn Collier's biography uh, burning in my bones. Um, gosh, that book, I wept when I finished reading that book. Um, that book for me is telling the story of Eugene. And so I could pick lots of Eugene Peterson books, but we'll go with that one. Uh, Tom Wright's surprised by hope. So many of us got our eschatology, right? Um, no pun intended. Um, and then probably, you know, the book I keep pulling off my shelf and keep going back to so often is uh, Dallas Willard's Renovation of the Heart, uh, which just celebrated its 20th, 25th anniversary, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that book, I just keep going back. I mean, I love Willard. Of course, Divine Conspiracy was an influential book. But the one I keep going back to that I realized, man, that really shaped me um, was Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard. Good. Well, uh, Derek, I want to thank you for being my guest today. Uh, And folks, uh, I do highly recommend picking up a copy of Centering Jesus, How the Lamb of God Transforms Our Communities, Ethics, and Spiritual Lives. Uh, Can you let folks know if they want to get find the book or find out more information about you or the best places to do that would be? Yeah, you can find me, Derek Vreeland, on uh, Facebook. Uh, Where am I? Instagram, Twitter, Threads. You, Brian, you were my first direct message in threads. I, I, that was well, so good. exciting. That was fun. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So on all the social medias, if you can spell my name right, you can find me. And then um, Centering Jesus is published by Nav Press. So wherever you find Christian books, you can find Centering Jesus. Well, I appreciate you sharing your gifts uh, with us today on the podcast. And thank you for writing the book and being the faithful uh, pastor and all the other things you do in the world. And it's been great to actually have an actual conversation with you today, Derek. I know we have emailed back and forth, but we finally had an opportunity to talk. So it was my pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. And thanks everyone for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in the world.